Coming up next on Passion Struck. We learn to use love as currency in a very transactional way. And to earn that currency, we need to do the right things. And when we do the wrong things, we lose the currency. That's the economy of success or chasing success or chasing perfectionism. No, so when we grow up, very often that voice of a loving mother or a caring teacher or sister or a friend is replaced by our own self-talk. We keep doing the same. We think that the only way I can be lovable and worthy if I do the right things, if I keep accomplishing, if I keep being good, good boy, good girl, successful, study well, and so on and so on. It's amazing when people are ambitious. But our ambitions should not be fueled by our need to feel our worth and our need for love. Because once they are fueled by these two things, it's a dead end. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 306 of Passion Struck, consistently ranked by Apple as a top 20 health podcast. And thank you to each and every one of you who come back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. Passion Struck is now on syndicated radio on the AMFM 247 National Broadcast. Catch us Monday and Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. on Apple Music, TuneIn, or wherever you listen. Links are in the show notes. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for being here, or you simply want to introduce this to a friend or family member, we now have episode starter packs. These are collections of our fans' favorite episodes that we organize into convenient topics that give any new listener a great way to get acclimated to everything we do here on the show. Either go to Spotify or passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. In case you missed it, earlier this week, I interviewed my friend Emily Morse, who is a doctor of human sexuality and the host of the award-winning number one sexuality podcast, Sex with Emily, which has been on air for nearly two decades. We discuss her new book, Smart Sex, where she distills her knowledge as a human sexuality expert into a groundbreaking framework that will revolutionize your understanding of sex and pleasure. I also wanted to say thank you for your continued support of the show. If you loved Emily's episode or today's, we would appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review and sharing with your friends and families. I know we and our guests love to see comments from our listeners. Now let's talk about today's episode. In a world obsessed with perfection and self-improvement, it's time to challenge the status quo and redefine what it truly means to live an authentic life. We will be delving into a groundbreaking new book by Mind Valley co-founder Christina Manlachiani, Becoming Flossom, The Key to Living an Imperfectly Authentic Life, which exposes the hidden perils of perfectionism and invites us to reclaim our true selves, flaws and all. Christina's unique perspective, shaped by her upbringing in Soviet Estonia, offers fresh insights into the detrimental effects of pursuing unattainable ideals. Join us as we explore the myths of hustle culture, the dark side of personal growth, and the insidious impact of imposter syndrome. Christina shares powerful exercises that will guide you in uncovering your subconscious beliefs, reframing your perspective, and living a more genuine life. In this episode, we'll discuss breaking free from the shackles of societal expectations and embracing our authenticity, the true cost of constantly striving for perfection and the toll it takes on our well-being, recognizing the prevalence of imposter syndrome and understanding its impact on high achievers, shedding light on the Hermione syndrome and its effect on personal growth, rejecting the notion of vulnerability, tyranny, and embracing our true selves unapologetically, the crucial role of self-love in finding genuine happiness and the limitations of self-care without it. It's time to liberate ourselves from the chains of perfectionism and embark on a journey of self-acceptance. Join us as we uncover the path to an imperfectly authentic life. Get ready to be inspired, empowered, and passionately struck by the transformative power of embracing our flaws. Christina Manlachiani is an entrepreneur, writer, international speaker, artist, and the author of the Live By Your Own Rules and Seven Days to Happiness online programs. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am so glad today to have Christina Mon Lakayani on Passion Struck. Welcome, Christina. 
Thank you, John, for having me and for giving me this opportunity. Well, it's truly an honor to have you on and especially given all that you've done to impact the personal growth of so many millions across the world. So thank you for your contributions as well. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for saying this. Well, one fascinating aspect that I learned about you that many might not know is your deep connection to the world of art and creativity. And I understand that you have a genuine passion for painting. Have you cultivated your artistic skills over the years? Well, actually, I have to be absolutely honest here, and I'm much better at drawing than painting. <laughs> and yeah, it's I actually went to art school for about four years when I was a child. So I've done all sorts of art poems, and my favorite is graphic and drawing. They're most unforgiving, but I studied it. And as a follow-on to that, because I myself feel that the arts and creativity are so important, how have you embraced creativity as a means of self-discovery and personal transformation? And how would you encourage perhaps the listeners to do the same? Well, I think creativity or being creative is in a way a trait that a lot of people have. I haven't researched creativity per se, so I wouldn't dare to say that everybody has it, but it, probably everybody. And I think for me, the causality probably goes a little bit differently. I need to express my creativity in things that I do. So it's not like I want creativity to help me with my work, but I would rather look for the task which require creativity. But then with that said, having been in business for 20 years and we have so many people working in so many areas, I think there's literally creativity in everything you can do. The question is, is the person willing to look at their, their tasks at hand creatively or do they prefer to just have things done? Now, in my opinion, being an entrepreneur is one of the highest forms of creativity. But of course, I'm also a writer and an author, and, and that all gives me the opportunity to express myself. Yes, and I think people who don't consider themselves creative overthink what it means to be creative, because you can have creativity in the simplest of things, whether it's journaling and expressing your thoughts that way. It could be putting a bouquet of flowers together. It could be taking pictures. There's so many different ways to express creativity rather than it having to be one of the formal ways that I think we see people do it. I think also as we are talking about that and I'm thinking a little bit more and more about creativity, creativity in essence is self-expression. And if you express yourself, you're bound to be creative in one way or another. And maybe the question is, how much in touch are you with yourself and how much do you dare to express yourself fully? Because it, when we start expressing ourselves, we suddenly are called creative or crazy. <laughs> well, speaking of getting to know yourself throughout today's interview in a bit, we're going to be talking about your brand new book, Becoming Flossom, The Key to Living an Imperfectly Authentic Life. And I just wanted to say congratulations to you on its release. Thank you so much for giving me this chance too. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we get there, I wanted to go through a little bit of your history. Similar to you, I got my start serving in the government. I happen to be part of the United States military. And you got your start serving for the government of Estonia. Can you tell me about that experience and some key takeaways for how it has shaped you? Well, I think when we're younger, we take decisions a little differently than when we're a little older and more mature and maybe have more experience. So I guess to understand my decision to work for the government, I have to give a little bit of a background. And I was born in Soviet Union and it was full-on Soviet Union before perestroika. I was growing up. So for me, considering that I'm a curious person, the only way to get out of the country or to travel or to see the world, the only idea I had was to become a diplomat, <laughs> hence the choice of profession. And when I went to university, the Soviet Union had just collapsed so that it was still a transition period. And a lot of countries who go through system change, and especially if it's such a system as Soviet Union was, which was very restrictive and, well, I would say tyrannical, then our choices are very different. So government work was what in my worldview was a sad, good job, sta stable, good salary, opportunities to travel. And that was the choice of my profession. I actually didn't regret that choice, but it was circumstances that moved me to a different path. I got married at 25 and moved to New York and I pretty much 
from square one. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to passionstruck. Well, it's interesting. My sister was also a diplomat and she did the reverse. She spent the vast majority of her time in former Soviet Union, specifically Moscow, St. Petersburg, Eastern Berlin, and Ukraine. But I know she loved her experience doing that. So you then come to the United States and as you said, you're starting again with nothing. What at that point inspired you to enter the personal growth industry and eventually to co-found Mind Valley? Well, I entered the personal growth industry because I accidentally co-founded Mind Valley. I would say that it was an accident and also it was a little bit reluctant. I had started my career in the government and I was quite passionate about making the world better. Of course, it may be questionable, does other government institutions the ones that help the, make the world better? But I've always been more passionate about a nonprofit world. Well, in that season of my life. Now, when I moved to New York, because I got married, my then husband, Vision, was passionate about personal growth. And he's the one who founded Mind Valley. But since I was in transition and trying to find myself, that was a good way to make myself useful. So I helped him with Mind Valley. That's how I ended up in the business. But the first few years, I was still trying to make my own choices and go my own way. It's just that sometimes we accidentally end up on the path which in essence, is our path. It's just that we don't always know it from the start. So in the beginning, I was trying to get off that path of personal growth and transformation and being in business and go back to non-governmental organizations, intergovernmental organizations. I was trying to get into UN. I got my master's degree in international politics, but then eventually I realized that I was in the right place and I shouldn't be running away. Well, speaking of what led to that, were there any experiences or moments that fueled your passion for empowering others? It's a very keen sense of justice, keen to the point where I'm not sure if it's good or bad, because that's probably the only thing that can totally unnerve me. <laughs> the easiest way to get me angry and I hope <laughs> nobody <laughs> manipulative is going to take a note of that is to actually poke my sense of justice when something, when I see injustice, I get really emotional, but Sometimes I'm mistaken, it, it happened, and then I would get really ashamed of myself. It's partially the idealistic upbringing of the Soviet Union, and it's a, a little hard, of course, nowadays when I know what an evil it was to, to, to point out some nicer parts about it. It was an idealistic society which did say that societal good is more important than the personal good. So I guess it was programmed into me since very young age. Or do I actually subscribe to that anymore? Probably not, but I have to live with this. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you started Mind Valley 20 years ago, did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams that it would have the impact that it has had on so many people worldwide? 
I think I always saw the beauty in what we were doing, but Mind Valley has also changed and evolved in the 20 years. So 20 years ago, it wasn't what it is now, of course. But for me, it was also like seeing that magical unicorn. In Soviet Union, doing business was illegal. And I had no examples of that in my life until Soviet Union collapsed. And then in the transition period, business was this shady, dangerous, semi-criminal activity. So for me, when I found myself in that startup, which was also idealistic and then uh, which was aiming to make the world a better place. It was literally like seeing a unicorn in real life. <laughs> I'm so dazzled that I don't think I ever doubted its beauty. I think I always lived in the future when it comes to Mind Valley. I always saw it bigger than what it was. So it's never been a surprise. Wow. Love that answer and that you always could see the impact it could have on people. So that's incredible. Well, we're going to be talking more about Flossom, which is about personal growth and transformation. But before we get into it, I wanted to see if you could describe your own personal philosophy or approach to personal growth and transformation and how has it evolved over the years? Oh, wow. That's such a big question. And of course, since I'm in this industry for 20 years and there are so many angles we could approach it from. But I guess for the starters, what I want to say is that personal growth industries, like any other industry in the world, no matter how noble our goals are, it is an industry. And we have the same kind of traps as any other industry. We have also sometimes unscrupulous people. So it is like any other industry in that sense that you can overdo it or you can misuse it. Now, when it comes to personal growth, the key word here is personal, actually rather than anything else. And I do use the word personal growth, but is it always growth? It's always transformation. Is it always growth is, is another question. I, I could probably write a separate book about personal growth and transformation, but maybe the important thing is that studying or attending events, um, doing things in that industry is not a guarantee of transformation or becoming better. It all has to come in a context and uh, you need three crucial elements, information, experience, and support system. Well, I want to now get into the book, but I found it to be pretty interesting when I was reading your introduction that uh, I have my own book coming out in February, but you and I initially went into it thinking the same thought. I was originally going to self-publish the book, but the more I thought about it, my mind took over and it led me to believe that if this is going to have the biggest impact, it would be better to go through the traditional publishing route. And I believe you had a similar occurrence. Yes. Well, John, first of all, congratulations on your book. <laughs> is Thank it you. number one or is it some have you written already? I have written a ton of articles, but uh, this is my first book. Yeah, book is such a different creature. It's a big form and obviously it requires a very different approach. I did write my book and my manuscript was completely finished when I was still planning to self-publish. In fact, it was a little bit over a year ago when I started looking into publishing it because I finished the manuscript. I had an editor go over it. We worked back and forth. It took a few more months on top of everything to make it printable. And then in that process of, of contemplating, how do I go after you have your manuscript? Manuscript is an interesting thing. What do you do with it? Then, then I, yes, I realized that if I want to be heard, I want to give it the best possible start. And then a completely new phase started for me. So my own journey of switching from self-published to being published with the traditional publisher was a very emotional journey of trying to reconciled my self-expression or creativity, what we were talking about, with convention, with expectations, with what people say you need to do for success. So I think that was and still keeps being a very complicated dance between my <laughs> need for self-expression and the pressure from the outside world. Well, you were very fortunate to get picked by Hay House because I love the authors that they publish and work really extensively with Lindsay and her team. And so congratulations on that too, because I think they're a top-notch publisher. Yeah, thank you. I think I was lucky and I actually felt the honor. So if I still had doubts, I think that was the last argument I needed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you write in the book, and I'm going to read this quote, you see your flaws and your dragons are there for a reason. 
They make you who you are, but they also hold the key to your biggest value, to your mightiest strengths, if you choose to look your dragons in the eye. And I wanted to ask, because I love that quote, what is the key to looking your dragons in the eye? It's three keys. Courage, for sure, but also honesty and kindness, if you want to survive. <laughs> well, and we're going to be unpacking each one of those. But you start the book out by talking about authenticity. And I believe so many of us today are hiding behind a mask of pretense. We're trying to become something we are not. And I love Benjamin Hardy's book, also a Hay House author, The Gap and the Gain, because too many of us find ourselves in the gap where we're comparing ourselves to others versus the gain, where we compare our progress to our past self. And I wanted to ask you, what happens when we compare ourselves to others and fail to be our authentic selves? In my book, I don't necessarily connect these two things in the sense like why we are not authentic. But when it comes to comparing, then this is definitely one of the most damaging habits that we have, which is on steroids, thanks to social media and ease of communication. And I have a personal experience with that. It's a very slippery slope comparison. Because when you start comparing yourself facet by facet, it's very easy to see someone who is better than you. And I'll just share my story as an illustration, then give the lesson I got out of the story. So I've been in business of personal growth for 20 years. And most of that time, I was an entrepreneur and a marketer. So on the other side of the curtain, if you can say, I wasn't on stage. And then at some point, it just natural progression of things. I ended up on stage speaking, sharing my own experience and my own research. And I remember my very first big event, big and very responsible event, responsible also because I'm a co-founder. Obviously, I felt I can't fail. So as I'm about to go on stage, I have some of the best world speakers before me, like, for example, Michael Beckwith, who's absolutely explosive. His presence on stage is just very, very big. That's not my energy. I could try to, to play that, but it wouldn't be me. Then we'd have some best-selling authors. I think that it was Keith Ferrazzi at that event. And of course, like super known, accomplished, and who am I? What have I written at that point? Then and I am a co-founder of Mind Valley, but then there are entrepreneurs who are probably more accomplished than me. So I remember going on stage and comparing myself like this, facet by facet. There's a better speaker, there's a better entrepreneur, there's a better author. And I felt smaller and smaller, and it was so scary. And if you add to that the fact that in the very early days of Mind Valley, I was asked not to speak because of my English, which is my third language, so I make mistakes, my pronunciation is funny. Literally, I couldn't catch my breath. I couldn't remember how to breathe. And I remember I was standing outside before I had to go on stage trying to remember how to breathe. <laughs> and then this lady passes by, and she sees me and recognizes, she says, Oh, it's you. I can't wait to hear your talk because when you talk, I feel like you're talking to me directly, like it's just you and me in the room and no one else because you're so relatable. And when she said that, it was a really, to a degree, a turning point in my career because I suddenly realized that I'm not there to be compared with all the other speakers. I'm there for me. And a friend of mine, right before that, had told me, it was a few days earlier, she said, we're so obsessed with the idea that we have a talent, that we forget that we are not two-dimensional. We are multi-talented human beings. And what makes us valuable is not a talent. It's the combination of things that make us unique. So it doesn't matter if I am lesser than anybody else when I compare myself facet by facet. What matters is that all of those things together give me the value which is absolutely unique compared to everybody else. That realization actually made me go on stage and own it and not be afraid of my accent, of my obscure background, of the fact that I refuse to do on stage what I'm told I have to do. But it really required recognition. Whatever those dragons are that maybe I feel ashamed of, they may be holding exactly the value that I have to give to the world. I do not know if I jumped somewhere else in trying to answer the question, but that's what came to me. No, I love that story because I think for so many of us trying to do a keynote speech in front of a group of peers and others is such a difficult thing to do. It really shakes your confidence to the core if you're not experienced doing it. And I have to say myself, when I look at some of our peers who are out there, 
it is pretty intimidating to see people like that who just own the stage and do it with so much courage and enthusiasm and boldness. They know how to weave stories and they know how to bring humor into their talks. And it's a difficult thing to master. What helps me is the message. And I've been in Preston Grove for 20 years, and I'm not saying now anything about the people that I just mentioned, but very often if you listen to the message, it may be quite simple and not very new. And when it comes, you ask me about the evolution of personal growth. Well, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was about motivation, kicking the ass. You can do it. If not now, when? If not you, who? I, what gives me strength and fortitude and conviction is the idea that I actually believe in my message and it is unique and it is absolutely necessary. And I don't mind if some people don't get me. I have a reason to be on stage. And I'm not there to compare myself and I'm not there to win the competition. I'm there because I believe in my message. Well, Christina, that's a beautiful segue into where I wanted to take this because the next person I wanted to talk about is Susan Kane. And I remember when she first came out with the whole topic of quiet and being an introvert, it was a topic that at that time, probably a lot of people were not expecting to hear. Yet she carried that message and turned it into a movement basically by doing what you just said, feeling that she had a message that the world needed to hear. And she was so impassioned about it that she just gave such inspiring talks because it came through her inner core in the way that she was presenting the topic. I loved my time with her because all her books are so powerful. And I bring this up because when you think of bittersweet, we have a funny tendency to brush over the unpleasant and the uncomfortable, as you write about in your book, and to rush into how we desire so much for it to be a perfect world. And why, if we don't deal with the unpleasant and uncomfortable, does it make us a missing person in our own lives? So I got that quote from Susan David, but I think that's a big problem of our society is that we are uncomfortable with discomfort. I know it sounds simple, but it is true. Think of all the ways we react to people who are in difficulties or in trouble. There is this whole movement about how to be with a grieving person because we are not comfortable even with that. I remember I, I was interviewing someone who had lost a dear person in his life, and they said that I just couldn't stand people sharing me with me how they had lost someone or how they dealt with that. We're just so uncomfortable with people's discomfort and with our own discomfort that we don't even talk about that. That's why we get this whole movement in, of good vibes only or positivity or this whole fascination with somebody being toxic for you. It's a really unfortunate world because, and I'll quote Susan David, I love her work very much. She says, discomfort is the price of admission to meaningful life. And meaningful life means that we have to be okay with the fact that sometimes we'll be incredibly uncomfortable. Sometimes we'll be sad. Sometimes we'll be grieving. Sometimes we'll be incensed, angry. Our sense of justice is going to be hurt. And if we as a society don't start talking about what is the right way to deal with that discomfort, we're not going to evolve too far because there is a limit to that. It comes from our childhood, because if we look at how do we raise children, we keep telling them how they are supposed to feel. Don't run around like crazy. Don't be restless. Don't throw a tantrum. And then we grow up and we carry the same conversation into adult life. That whole movement of first world problems. How dare you to feel miserable? You have to be grateful about what you have in your life. There are people who are more miserable than you. We're not allowed to feel whatever we feel. We're shamed for our feelings. And then we take on that paradigm and we actually feel guilty for just being human. I think that is such a powerful message. And yesterday I happened to be interviewing a former Navy SEAL and when SEALs are going through BUDS training, there's a lot of suffering that happens. And they have this saying that it's better to suffer in the front than it is to suffer in the rear. But what we were talking about was that he was suffering in silence. He had gone through a number of missions and head injuries and other things that were causing him mental anguish. And I think we are taught to bottle up these negative emotions and not express them that too many people today are suffering in silence. And so I'm glad that you 
express that need to awaken your soul, let yourself feel these emotions because they are so powerful in experiencing who you are authentically supposed to be. And I think another wonderful author who talks about that is Renee Brown. I know she's known for slightly different topics, but she has this book called Rising Strong, where she's talking about lying on the arena face in the mud. Because whatever popular culture you take, we're talking about bouncing back. We almost never talk about the low moment. Look at the movies, whichever movies it is, even about underdogs. Very often we jump over the hardships. And we show how the person bounced forward, bounced back, whatever you call it. The conversation about being in the low is almost a taboo. And no wonder people suffer in silence, because first of all, they don't think anybody can help them. They don't feel think that people will relate. And there is also this feeling of shame and guilt. Oh, why am I going to bother you with that? Well, I did this incredible interview earlier this year with Dr. Will Cole, and he brought up a term for me that I had never heard before, but it just resonated so strongly. And that term was shame flammation. Oh, wow. <laughs> because we allow ourselves to feel shame, as Brene Brown is best known for, but the shame in itself causes us to have chronic stress, which causes us to have inflammation. And when you combine the two together, it just becomes this toxic fuel that brings you down a rabbit hole of despair. Yeah. And I just thought that word shameflammation was such a unique way of capturing that feeling and the need to do something about it. Well, I do talk about that in my book because I think this is the kind of literacy that we humans need, <laughs> the emotional literacy, because we humans, we experience emotions for a reason. And why don't we stop pretending that there are good or bad emotions and that some emotions should happen and others don't? And I think it's time we just learn to process them properly. I completely agree with you. And getting back to Susan Cain, our discussion somehow shifted from talking about bittersweet to another topic that came up, which was effortless perfection. And the timing of that discussion was really important for me because I had at that point not heard of the term, but I had one of my kids who was going through high school who was experiencing just that. I mm -hmm. think so many of the younger generation today and others have this feeling that they have to be perfect in everything that they're doing in order to matter in society, to get into the school that they want to achieve what they're seeing in front of them. And why is it so important for us to stop chasing perfection in our life? Well, as you were drawing the scenario, I kept asking questions. Why do they want to go in that school? What's, do we even ask the right questions? Why do you want a certain thing? Very often, if we start dissecting our own goals, they all come down to a very simple need, need to be loved and admired. Why do we want to go to a certain school? Because that makes us or sets us on the path to success. We can get a better job. Or we can get higher pay. Society will consider us more successful, more smart. And, but if you start asking, why do you need that? Usually it comes down to one very simple thing. I just want to feel worthy. I want to feel loved. I want to feel appreciated. And I think that's where the trouble is. We tie our self-worth with things which are external in nature and very often don't really reflect our self-worth. I don't know. It's like in a game. You have to reach certain accomplishments. Now, why it happens? Because I think the answer to your question would come through how, how, the, how we start chasing perfectionism, because that's where the problem is. Well, when child is small, and I like to bring everything back to children, I think I'm a little bit like, <laughs> I'm a little bit too classical in my approach to psychology, but I think we get all our wounds from childhood and all our programs also from childhood. But how it happens is that when we grow up, we learn to deserve or earn love of people that are important to us by doing the right things, by being a good boy or a good girl, by behaving well, by studying well, by doing how mommy said, by being obedient, all those things. Usually when a child behaves, well-meaning parents, teachers, friends even say, they shower us with love. And we know that if I'm good, if I do what I'm expected to do, 
if I'm pleasing, if I make people feel good, I'll get love. Now, if child misbehaves in any way, then usually even the well-meaning parents who actually deep inside continue loving their child, they do use love as currency and they withdraw it to teach a lesson to a child. Mama is angry. And while mama might know that while being angry, I still love my child, a little child doesn't know that. For a little child, if mama is angry and doesn't like to talk to me anymore, or is scolding me, or is upset because of me, that means mama doesn't love me. And we learn to use love as currency in a very transactional way. And to earn that currency, we need to do the right things. And when we do the wrong things, we lose the currency. That's the economy of success or chasing success or chasing perfection. When we grow up, very often that voice of a loving mother or a caring teacher or sister or a friend is replaced by our own self-talk. We keep doing the same. We think that the only way I can be lovable and worthy if I do the right things, if I keep accomplishing, if I keep being good boy, good girl, successful, study well, and so on. It's amazing when people are ambitious, but our ambitions should not be fueled by our need to feel our worth and our need for love. Because once they are fueled by these two things, it's a dead end. When you reach the top, you might feel good about your accomplishments, but if you didn't feel worthy while you were going for your goals, you will not feel any worthier when you have reached your goals. The only thing that will change is that you won't have your goals to motivate you anymore. Wow, what a powerful message. And I'm so glad you brought that up because it's a common theme that I've been hearing in a number of the recent interviews I did, specifically the ones with Marshall Oldsmith and Arthur Brooks, because they were both talking about how much we get consumed by the Western disease of chasing the things that aren't important, success, money, and fame, when those things don't really ignite the fire inside of you or bring you happiness in any way. So Before we go on, I have to compliment you on the amazing people you keep interviewing. I'm really in awe. <laughs> well, I'm interviewing the amazing you, so... <laughs> I'm honored to be in this company. Thank you. <laughs> what was really interesting, especially talking to Marshall Goldsmith, because he recently came out with this book called The Earn Life. And he said, there's one desire that every human has in common. And that is we all want happiness, mm -hmm. but it is so elusive to find. And his thought when I was talking to him is because we look at it completely the wrong way. Yeah. We think that success is going to bring us happiness. And he says we get the duality wrong. Yeah. Happiness ends up driving success, but you become happy, in his words, by living the earned life, by mm. striving to be the best that you can be in service of others. And when you do that and you feel fulfilled inside, ultimately it drives success. Do you believe that's true? Well, I, my first comment is like, why does it have to be elusive? It doesn't have to be elusive, but we can talk about that a little later, happiness. Now, when it comes to the correlation between success and happiness, it's not even the question of belief. I was born in Soviet Union, so I need to research everything. There is plenty of research that shows that there is a correlation between success and happiness, but the causality goes just one way. Success naturally doesn't bring happiness, and we all know that. Because if you look at a lot of successful people, and I'm talking about traditional definition of success, whether it's financial success or professional success, a lot of them are quite miserable, or they have out-of-balance life, lose their health and family and whatnot, including some very successful people have killed themselves. So naturally, success doesn't bring happiness. There's no need for research. Research does show that if you are striving for success in the state of happiness, and of course, we don't understand happiness as state usually, then you're much luckier to achieve success. There is actually research proving that and not just one research. It's for it to be believable. It has to be replicable. So it is proven. Now, why I said that happiness doesn't have to be elusive. The problem with our conversation about happiness in our contemporary society, there are two problems. Problem number one is that we deprioritize it. While we all want happiness, I wonder how many people you have interviewed who have their personal happiness as one of their annual goals. I've been in this industry for a long time. People feel it's not a serious goal. 
So we don't, we never aspire for happiness. In fact, contemporary discourse says that you shouldn't chase happiness because you won't reach it. And there are a lot of interesting ideas about what you should not do about happiness. Yet rule number one in personal growth and transformation is that if you want to achieve anything, you have to work on it. And that's the interesting thing. You want a good, healthy body, you have to work on your body. You want strong, loving relationships, you have to work on your relationships. You want to be rich, you have to work on your money blueprint. Yet you want to be happy, you have to do nothing. This just doesn't make sense to me. Now, what I came to a conclusion is that we as a society define happiness as an emotion. And emotions by their nature are fluid. They don't stick. That's the nature of emotions. They happen. And as you're expressing your emotion, it changes because that's what emotions are. They're those waves of energy that go over us. So if you identify happiness as an emotion or anything relatable, joy, euphoria, excitement, of course, they are not stable. Of course, they're going to change. The moment you achieve it, the moment you feel it, it's changing. Now, it's interesting. In psychology, we define depression or anxiety as a stable state. The reverse of that, happiness, is still defined as an emotion. The closest to defining happiness as a state that we came to is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, Mihai, who coined the idea of the state of flow. And I think that's the closest we get to understanding how we should view happiness. We should start looking at it as a stable state because then if it's a state, it is there to stay. You can practice it. You can have practices to attain it, to train the muscle. Well, I just want to comment on something that you brought up earlier this week. I interviewed Joe Grover, who's the author of a new book called The Choice Point. And she was the first certified person in the United States on functional imagery training. But in the book, they laid out that they did this huge survey of different people about their core values. And the number one that comes to the top every single time wasn't happiness. It wasn't relationships. It wasn't money. It was health. Yet you look at health and you look at the fact that over 60% of all adults have at least one chronic disease. And it's one of the simplest things that if you followed a consistent routine of taking yeah. action in your life, that you'd be able to achieve it. But people don't do those actions. And I think it's similar to the state of happiness. You stay in this state of happiness by taking actions and making decisions on a daily basis that get you closer to it. And when you don't, and this is something we're going to talk about in a little bit, you get into this state of autopilot where you are just functioning in the unconscious state that you exist in instead of purposely propelling yourself towards where you desire to go. I do want to comment on one thing, though. I would like to also understand how these people define health, because nowadays we understand that health is not just physical well-being, it's also emotional well-being. It has been growing in priority and happiness in essence is your emotional well-being. So it's this hidden side of uh, people's priority. <laughs> it certainly is. Well, when I was earlier in my career, one of my priorities was trying to do what we just talked about and that was to be successful. I found myself at that time idolizing the hustle. However, like 80% of successful people, I was also suffering, as we talked about before, from imposter syndrome. And eventually that hustle life led to extreme burnout. You talk in the book about surfing as being the antidote to hustling. I was hoping you could explain this hustle culture and what is surfing and why is it better for us? Well, surfing, in essence, it's when you see this little dot in the ocean bobbing, waiting for the wave. And then when the wave comes, that little dot jumps on the board and makes it to the shore with joy and excitement. And that's literally what I mean. Now, I'm going to misapply Pareto's principle here a little bit, but there is 
that kind of a correlation in work as well. Everybody knows. Most of the people who coach you on success will say that 20% of your efforts bring 80% of your results. There's another theory, which also is loosely based on Pareto idea, the theory of flow that says that if you work in the state of flow in 20% of the time, you will achieve 80% of what you would do if you do it not in the state of flow, which is very interesting. I actually think there must be some reason behind those percentages, 20 and 80. But the point that I'm trying to make is that this kind of inspiration, creativity, self-expression, flow, genius, they are very intangible. People have hard times understanding that. So how do I set myself in the state of flow? If I have certain routines, maybe I know how to do that. Since it's intangible, people are tempted in the places which are important, are tempted to just more effort in. I don't understand how to get myself into the state of flow or become creative or get the stroke of genius, but I do understand how to work longer hours. This is easy to do. Now, I have been a perfectionist all my life and I've studied really well at school. And I actually understand that thing. Sometimes if you can't reach your goal, you feel better just by doing a little bit more or putting a little bit more effort. So very often what we do is that rather than moving towards our outrageous goals, we're actually keeping ourselves busy so that we feel good about whatever we are doing. And if we don't succeed, then at least it doesn't come from the lack of effort. And that's a very tricky situation. I hope you don't mind me using a little bit of slang, but my mom used to call that when I was in school, ass hours. Some people just get their lessons. and Other people have to put ass hours into getting there. Which is really interesting because we, as we grow up, as we get jaded, as we get into the hamster's wheel, keep falling back onto ass hours because they're tangible, they're understandable. I can't stay up all night and then something maybe will happen. Now, it's not a sustainable way of living naturally, which is why I suggest surfing, which obviously requires flow and the stroke of genius and trust and letting go and just expressing yourself without fear. Now, if you surf, once you find your wave, you're going to ride it to the shore with a lot of fun and much faster. Unlike running like this little rodent in a hamster's wheel. And I also want to make a disclaimer. I don't believe in absolutes. And I'm not saying that you have to do one over the other. You can hustle, but you can't hustle for the sake of hustle to make you feel better that you're doing something. You can't hustle because you believe this is the only way to success and you don't even know why you need success. The only place where you can hustle is when you know that this is a necessary stage in whatever bigger picture, but you would do that not because you want the success. You do that because the activity has meaning for you. I think, especially for entrepreneurs, and that's a creative activity, creativity doesn't happen in a hamster's wheel. Creativity requires vacuum. It requires the flow. It requires the stroke of genius. So if hustle is your default mode, then that's a huge red flag especially if you're in a creative job, you really need to force yourself into some stillness because only there, only out of stillness, you will be able to break through the glass ceiling, not out of the hamster's wheel. I think that's a great point. We all need to build that white space into our daily routines where we can recharge ourselves, give the opportunity to have creativity, to visualize to be energized it's one of the reasons i started this podcast was i got so numb because of the burnout and the hustle it's something i wouldn't want anyone else in the world to experience so if i can help someone not go through it as you just described that's a huge win in my mind what's really horrible about hustle is that we feel guilty if we don't I'm right now in the launch phase of my book and the amount of illusions, oh, why do you value balance? Why do you want to spend time with your kids? Aren't you, isn't your success important to you? It's so tempting to feel guilty if you don't put blood, sweat and everything, if you don't do horrible sacrifices on the altar of your success, because that's the paradigm with which we grow up. Look around. Have you ever heard a story of somebody succeeding by doing what they love? We mostly hear stories about people succeeding because they have suffered, because they were willing to give up everything. And if that's the only paradigm that we have, then no surprise, first of all, that we think that we have to hustle for success. If we don't, we either feel like imposters because why did it come easy? Or that it's not going to be durable. Oh, if it came easy, then it's not going to last. It's not real success. 
The thing about our brain is that there is a reticular activating system in our brain and our nervous system that actually makes sure that we notice what we focus on. Whatever you believe you're going to notice in your environment, if you believe that the only way to success is hustle, sacrifices, that's the only evidence you're going to see. And that's your life. That's how you're going to be living. And we as a society keep reinforcing that idea, but it's not the only possible solution. You can achieve success by doing what you love, what has meaning for you. So I think that one of the reasons that we stay in this mode of hustle culture is this topic of autopilot, which you cover in part three of your book. And I actually dedicated myself a whole chapter to it in my upcoming book. I call it living a pinball life. And I give the analogy that we let the game of pinball play us and we get so distracted and so consumed with everything that's going around us that we don't take the time mm. to learn how to master the game. And I was hoping you could share what you feel it means to live on autopilot and how does it impact the life that we want to have? Mm. Of course, my big curse is that I'm too aware. Sometimes it's good to be on autopilot. And there's a reason why we go on autopilot. We make so many decisions throughout the day. And there is an objectively such a phenomenon as decision fatigue. We all would have experienced that if we had a long day of discussions, for example. By the end of the day, it's almost physically hard to make decisions. And research shows that such decisions are of worse quality. Our better quality decisions happen when we are rested. And we haven't had to take a lot of decisions. Why? What we do is that naturally we look for shortcuts. That's why we like routines. We like traditions. We like certain patterns in our life. That's why Steve Jobs used to wear exactly the same clothes. So he has one less decision in his life. Proverbial Steve Jobs with his clothes. <laughs> but there is a reason for that. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing if it serves you. The problem is that very often we create certain habits they evolve and they stay with us for such a long time that number one, we forgot why we have those habits or those patterns. Number two, sometimes they evolve to the point where they're not helpful anymore. And number three, sometimes we do them on autopilot without even getting the benefit of it. A very controversial example. One of the most popular practices in personal growth and transformation is gratitude. Gratitude is a really good practice. But a lot of people do it for such a long time and so much on autopilot that what it becomes is in essence just this checking the boxes. Now, gratitude changes your life if you actually feel it, experience it, if it's actually meaningful. Not that I'm grateful that I have a house, a body and a health and whatever, which you have every day, but actually maybe if it's a little bit more up to date. What am I grateful for in this particular moment or whatever happened to me today? Or the thing is that once you keep doing something on autopilot, sometimes it stops working for you. But there is a natural tendency to create autopilot in our life because otherwise we'd get exhausted with constant decision-making. Now, I think the balance is to revisit some of your autopilot from time to time, practice awareness, obviously, have awareness on requests. You can anchor it to certain daily routines so that you practice awareness. For example, when you are doing exercises, you know how it is in exercises in the gym. They say that if you do the same exercises over and over again, your body gets used to that and you don't get the same benefit, which is why a lot of trainers, and I'm not saying that's the right way or the only way, but a lot of trainers would make you change your exercises so that it actually starts working for you again. So it's good to bring awareness into your autopilot, but we also have to be fine with the fact that we'll keep having autopilot in our life because that makes it easier. Christina, one of the sections I loved the most in the book was the one about us being a self-critic. And it's another one where I wanted to read what you wrote because I loved it. You say, the world will treat you the way you will train it to treat you. It's a hard truth to swallow. It may be unpleasant to admit. But in most cases, that's exactly what happens. If you don't respect, you'll likely be insulted. If you don't expect justice, you'll likely be taken advantage of. If you don't expect love and acceptance, you're going to be rejected. How do we make ourselves to stop being our biggest critic? Because I think it's one of the biggest issues that we face. 
There are several aspects to look at. First of all, why do we criticize ourselves? And there's also belief that you have to criticize yourself if you want to succeed, if you want to grow, it's healthy. I've actually been told that straight in my face, but isn't it good to criticize yourself? Now, and I could go into a long discussion about that, but I'll give you a very simple example, again, with children. Imagine a little kid is learning to walk and the kid gets up and makes the first step and the mom goes, oh my God, this is so awesome. And then the kid makes another step and falls down and the mom says, what's wrong with you? Look at your peers. Look, everybody in your age is walking already. It's, it's so easy. You just made one. You can't do the second one. And that's literally how we talk to ourselves very often. Now, when it's little children, we understand that with little children, encouragement works better than punishment. Somehow, when we grow up, we move into transition where we believe that punishment works better than encouragement. And we stop encouraging ourselves, we start punishing ourselves. Punishing in order to become better. And that's such a dangerous pattern. Again, our society feeds us a lot of examples of how punishment has worked, how hard work, forcing yourself has made you do whatever you're now doing. And again, I'm saying it's not the only paradigm. Now, another aspect of that is that we are not even aware how critical we are to ourselves. And that's the more dangerous thing, because very often when we think about that, we're in a good place. Like, for example, if I were to ask your audience right now, how kind are you to yourself or are you critical to yourself? Most of the people would feel because we are in a good place and they're doing something useful. They're listening or watching this. So most of us would feel like I'm just realistic. Yeah, I know my shortcomings, but I'm good. Now, if you were to pay attention to your self-talk throughout the day, not just when you're feeling good, but for example, when you snapped at someone, then you felt ashamed or when you failed somewhere or when you had a heated discussion and you actually probably were too emotional. If you were to record your self-talk in this kind of moments, you would discover the truth about how kind you are to yourself. And now I'm going to invite people to do this exercise Although you're going to have a spoiler, so you might actually cheat on this exercise. Try to record your self-talk for a day. This is part one. Now, part two is the one which is the shocker usually. At the end of the day, give that self-talk to someone that you truly love and ask them to read it back to you. And then you will discover the whole truth about are you being realistic? I'm just being, I want to be a better person of myself. Or are you just being grind down mean and a bully? Most of us are not nice to ourselves. The huge aspect of your book is really self-love. And I think a lot of us practice self-care, but not mm. enough self-love. And if we don't have self-love, we're not going to have self-kindness. We're not going to be kind to others. We're not going to express to others the ultimate essence that we can because we don't feel good about ourselves which is something that really comes out throughout your whole book. People are afraid to be kind to themselves. They say, but I'll be indulgent. No, it's the reverse. You're afraid to challenge yourself. Do you remember we talked about using love as currency? If you think that if you fail, if you're not as good as you, you wish you would be, that you will not deserve your own love and respect, that you will be mean to yourself, you won't even go to challenge yourself. It's when you are like that baby. Oh, you fell. Never mind. Let's try again. When you treat yourself like that baby with kindness and compassion and encouragement, that's when you'll really have the courage to go out and challenge yourself. Well, thank you for that beautiful answer. And I wanted to end on this question, and I'm going to tie it into your website as well. Flossom is really about finding your way back to yourself. What is your advice for listeners on how you find the courage to rise to your strengths and your flaws in exchange for true freedom, success, and an authentic life? Oh, <laughs> that question is an opening for another one hour of conversation. But you know what? I'll leave your audience with a very small tip. In your relationship with yourself or self-talk, which we just talked about, try to replace judgment with curiosity. Just Give it a try for, let's say, a week and see what changes. So rather than judging yourself, be curious. Rather than saying, oh, what's wrong with you? Why can't you do it? Ask, oh, I wonder what happened. Why did you feel like this? What does it say about you? So replace judgment with curiosity and see what happens. 
Well, with Christina, I love this interview today. And I just want to tell the audience that it's an awesome book. As I mentioned, Hay House does a great job in selecting their authors, and they did exactly that with you. So thank you so much for giving us the honor of being on the show today. It was such a great episode. Thank you, John, so much. It was my pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview with Christina Mon-Lakiani, and I want to thank Christina and Hay House for the privilege and honor of having her appear on today's show. Links to all things Christina will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Please use our website links if you purchase any of the books from the guests that we feature on the show. All proceeds go to supporting the show. Videos are on YouTube at both Passionstruck Clips as well as John R. Miles. As I mentioned at the beginning, we are also on the AM-FM 247 National Broadcast. You can catch us on Monday and Fridays from 5 to 6 p.m. Links will be in the show notes. Advertiser deals and discount codes are all in one convenient place at passionstruck.com slash deals. I'm on LinkedIn where you can join my newsletter or you can find me at John R. Miles on all the social platforms where I post daily doses of inspiration, hope, and meaning. And if you want to know how I book amazing guests like Christina, it's because of my network. Go out there and build yours before you need it. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast I did with Jason Kander, a former Army captain who served in Afghanistan and was the first millennial ever selected to statewide office. We discuss his memoir, Invisible Storm, his journey to recovery, and why you must either deal with your trauma or your trauma deals with you. The military works very hard to ground into you the notion that what you're doing is no big deal. And this starts the moment you start basic training and it goes all the way through your service. It's a pretty necessary form of brainwashing because for me to do the job I did, you've got to believe that it's no big deal compared to what other people are doing. Otherwise, you can't go out and do it. If you've bitten from the the apple of knowledge and you understand that what you're doing is insane and that it's really dangerous, the problem is that when you finish your deployment or you finish your service, nobody flips that switch off. Nobody explains to you, actually, it was quite a big deal. And it, it, you should expect to feel different because what you did is not normal for a human being. The fee for this show is that you share it with family or friends when you find something useful or inspirational. If you know someone who's looking to understand how to unlock an authentic life, then definitely share today's episode with them. The greatest compliment that you can give us is to share the show with those that you love and care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. Until next time, go out there and be passion struck. Mm-hmm.